must accept I wish science agreed with you. that it is within our power to halt and reverse climate change. We are the first nation to go underwater if we don't stop fossil fuel. We are a generation of scared people, but very ambitious. Like me die. We indeed have some work to do, but some more than others. We're not here to save this world. We're here to tear down this world and build a new one. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change, a podcast that explores the key pillars of a globally just Green New Deal. I'm your host, Harpreet Korpal, and in this episode, we'll be looking at an often forgotten yet fundamental cornerstone of the climate question land. The way we are using land is accelerating the climate crisis. The sovereignty of communities around the world is being routinely and violently transgressed by multinational corporations corporations who claim superior rights to land use and resource extraction, often in the name of conservation, food production or energy provision. In this episode, I'll be speaking to an array of expert guests from around the world to consider how climate breakdown is intimately connected to capitalist and colonial relationships to land. We'll ask, how has land come to be something that we extract from dominate and commodify? How is this logic being reproduced in existing responses to climate breakdown? And what does land on planet B look like? How do we fundamentally reorient our relationship to nature and place and reclaim our world from the mindset of racialized capitalist extraction? As always, don't forget to check out the illustrated book on which this podcast series is based, It's called Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, and you can order your free copy at www.global-gnd.com. Climate change is making these events more extreme. Wildfires blazing through Turkey and Greece. Faster than previously forecast. Floods and cyclones and other natural disasters. Record wildfires in southern Europe. Forest fires since past several days now. Flames tearing through the US and Canada. Many Indian cities could sink. Bem como por ser floresta única, como em grande parte dos senhores, não pega fogo. In Brazil, which is one of the most horrendous cases, the neo-fascist Trumpian government has been accelerating the destruction of the Amazon against the urgent pleas to the world of the indigenous people living there who are trying to preserve it and to preserve their own lives because they're facing genocide. Uh, The world is just not listening. Powerful pleas easily accessible, deaf ears, okay? And what's happening is, for the rest of the world, suicide. The Amazon forests are a major sink for carbon. Uh, It's been understood that sooner or later they'll shift under global warming, they'll shift from being a sink to a source of carbon emission. Amazingly, that's already happening. Brazilian scientists have recently discovered that the southeastern Amazon has already shifted. It's now producing rather than absorbing carbon dioxide. For Brazil, it's a disaster. It means, and you can already see it, droughts, end of the rainfall, loss of agricultural production, more heating accelerates. And for the world, it's a disaster. This is one of the main carbon sinks in the world, one of the main sources of oxygen. But we sit and watch while the indigenous people try to awaken us. That was Noam Chomsky, Professor Emeritus at the MIT and author of many books, most recently on the Global Green New Deal. 
Chomsky spoke to us for an extended interview, which you'll find on Navarra Media's podcast feed in the coming days. Amongst other things, we spoke about the burning of the Amazon rainforest, which darkened the skies from Sao Paulo, Brazil to Santa Cruz, Bolivia in 2019. Much of the blame for this atrocity rightly fell on Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro for encouraging the burning of forests and the seizure of indigenous peoples' lands. But as Noam addressed in our interview, this event wasn't just the actions of a gratuitously anti-environment authoritarian. These visceral scenes of abuse of Amazonian land and the people who live on that land was systematically incentivized by that authoritarian colluding with and bowing to a destructive global food industry. Large-scale international agriculture companies like JBS, Cargill and Tyson, as well as the global brands that buy from them, like Costco, McDonald's or Walmart, are creating the international demand that finances these fires and deforestation. In the last two decades alone, it is estimated that 26.7 million hectares of land has been acquired worldwide by corporate investors for use in the global agricultural industry, also known as the agribusiness. The agribusiness model concentrates power and the ownership in our food system in the hands of just a few companies. The practices of these companies consistently deprioritize health and ecological concerns in favor of profit and market monopolization. As a result, how we produce and distribute food has not only become less efficient and less equal, but also more polluting. Hello, I'm Dusan Pajovic. I'm from Montenegro. I live in Kotor, where I'm based right now. And I'm Green New Deal for Europe coordinator for DM25, pan-European leftist movement. The global food system is driving environmental injustice through the pollution of ecosystems by pesticides and agricultural runoff. It also produces roughly a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Dushan told us more. When it comes to ecology specifically, as you said, animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of global greenhouse emissions, which is actually more than all the transportation sector combined. Uh, also, methane is uh, produced in large quantities by cows in the milk and meat industry, and methane is estimated to be 86 times more destructive for global warming than CO2. When it comes to water, while we fear plausible wars for drinking water, animal agriculture is using 20 to 33% of uh, the world's fresh water. So this is something that we need to really look more into. Also, there are some other big, big problems uh, because these businesses are really vicious and uh, the list of their atrocities is long. Uh, some of them are ocean dead zones, deforestation, biodiversity loss, and so on. And ultimately, we have even seen that they are the ones who are setting Amazon on fire uh, with the collaboration with Bolsonaro, of course. So it's always oligarchs and career politicians. Big commodity traders like Bunge Limited, Cargill, Louis Dreyfus, and Archer Daniels Midland are the agricultural equivalents of fossil fuel companies like Shell and BP. They reap the rewards of a broken system and are subsidised by state handouts, all while leaving the basic sustenance needs of millions of people unfulfilled and destroying the natural world. Much of this is rooted in how these companies use land, Whereas subsistence farming would use a stretch of land to grow multiple crops or raise different kinds of animals, industrial farming uses a monoculture system where vast swathes of land are used to produce just one product. This increases local food insecurity, degrades the soil, requires intensive water use and drives up the demand for deforestation. Monoculture is fundamentally capitalist in practice. It is part of a system that produces food to be commodified and exported to the highest bidder, 
rather than distributed according to what humans actually need. It developed out of the desire of major companies to monopolise the market of a particular crop, even if it means that crop is then overproduced and discarded when many can't afford to buy it. The food that is being produced by the agribusiness is implicated in poor health outcomes and a supply chain ridden with workers' rights abuses. So, even if the agribusiness wasn't destroying our land, driving ill health, exploiting workers, draining water and polluting our skies, it would still be the case that this model wouldn't be doing what a food system is supposed to do, which is... Well, feed people. 30 to 50% of all food that is being produced is never actually consumed by a person. Yet, one in three people globally face some form of malnourishment and one in nine systemic hunger. Farmers and land workers in Punjab, India, have been protesting the agribusiness industry as early as 1984 and most recently in 2020. The monoculture food system imposed by national governments, multinational food producers and the World Bank means these workers cannot choose what they grow on their land or how they grow it. Protesters have argued that these are akin to the conditions of slavery. Every 30 minutes, a farmer in India commits suicide as they struggle to cope with the mounting debt and shrinking profit of doing the same work they've done for generations. Many others are displaced from their livelihood. Their land is seized by multinational corporations, leaving them without an income and forced to buy the commodities they once grew. This dysfunctional system is the product of a colonial, capitalist framework of land. The dispossession of people from the land they work and live on is specific to our current system, as is the transformation of land into a commodity to be bought and sold. Under this framework, land is there to be profited from, whether it's through exploitative agricultural practices, real estate speculation or rent-seeking. The highest, most violent bidder can assert rights to land they have never stepped foot on, determine how that land is used, and how the value extracted from it is distributed. It's therefore unsurprising that how land is being used not only fails to fulfil our basic needs, like food and housing, but actively threatens the stability of our planetary ecosystem. This dynamic is, of course, an aberration in human history, a phenomenon that has only characterised our land practices for the past couple of centuries. Relationships of cultivation, stewardship and collaboration have defined the majority of human history. For example, many indigenous notions of land sovereignty rather than ownership hold that land belongs to those who work it, care for it and live on it which is a far cry from today's capitalist system, where 20% of the world's land is owned by just 15 people. Net zero. 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 Blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral. Blah, blah, blah. It is within this context that we must scrutinise mainstream responses to climate breakdown. How are some of the most popular solutions we hear about fundamentally rooted in this modern colonial capitalist politics of land? One phrase we've started to hear a lot in mainstream climate discourse recently is that of net zero emissions. Net zero, as opposed to just zero carbon, refers to the use of so-called negative emissions technologies or offsets which are supposed to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. That way, the amount of carbon dioxide emitted doesn't just have to be reduced, it just has to be absorbed somewhere else. I'm Keith Chandrasekharan, 
and I am an international program coordinator for the uh, Global Environmental Justice Grassroots Federation called Friends of the Earth International. And I am from India, but I have been living and working in the UK for about 10 years, something like that. Yeah. So that's me. And I wrote the chapter on can land as a carbon sink save us all for the compendium on the Global Green New Deal. That was so great. In Kirtana's piece for Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, she outlined how land-based climate mitigation and adaptation is fast becoming a central pillar of both corporate and state responses to climate breakdown. When I caught up with her recently, she began by outlining the neo-colonial politics behind net zero. So net zero is essentially... I guess the equation of greenhouse gas emissions minus greenhouse gas removals. So that's the net. At the moment is being used by corporations, but also especially industrialized country governments, including the UK, very much the UK, to basically pursue the strategy of relying on offsets to reduce emissions. So because it's a net, they are assuming that they will continue pursuing a strategy that relies on offsetting emissions from their kind of business-as-usual operations, uh, not reducing as close to zero as possible, and then compensating for any residual emissions. It's continued exploration, exploitation, production, sale, burning of fossil fuels, increasing the output, and all the while showing, you know, really beautiful photos of the nature-based offsetting projects of how they're going to achieve net zero. So that's kind of uh, what the logic is here. And as I mentioned before, the last time I saw in the last um, Committee on Climate Change report uh, from a couple of years ago when I looked into this, they've actually uh, assumed that 40% of the UK's emissions reductions are going to come from the net of net zero. So that's the UK basically saying, we're going to continue, we're going to approve uh, new oil fields as we can see them doing. We're going to try to approve new coal plants. We're not even going to think about um, reducing emissions or reducing the airline sector. And we are not even going to start thinking about uh, the UK's role in the world, our historical emissions, our role in the Industrial Revolution, colonization, our role in um, you know, really high carbon lifestyles, our role as the home of the really high polluting 10% of the global population. But we're going to gloss over all of that uh, and claim that we're going to achieve the so-called net zero by um, planting trees. Multinational corporations like to brag about the billions of trees they have planted or intend to plant as part of their carbon offsetting practices. Think about the last time you were told that for every bag of coffee or item of clothing you bought, a tree would be planted. Sounds lovely, right? But what exactly is the logic here? And why are corporations and governments so keen to promote this as a solution? Here's Kirtana again. Most pathways uh, to limit temperature rise below 2 degrees and almost all the pathways to 1.5 degrees rely now on what they call the use of these negative emissions technologies, which mostly don't exist. Uh, So think geoengineering or uh, carbon capture and storage. Um, And of course, is the result itself. The need to even start talking about these negative emissions technologies is the result of the huge failure to put in place the kind of structural changes needed to reduce emissions from all sectors, So here I'm talking about fossil fuels, but also other ones that you don't always think about. So things like the industrial food system, the plantations industry, where, you know, um, they contribute anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of greenhouse gases, you know, um, land use change and things like that. Um, But now what's been happening over the last few years is that most countries realizing that they are nowhere near achieving the goals that they should be on um, stopping you know, emissions have started what Kevin Anderson, the climate scientist, calls turning up the net dial. So they basically assume more and more and more that at some point in the future, we're going to have these technologies that are going to draw carbon back into land and you know, different places. 
so we can continue on our pathway to emitting more and more when actually we should be peaking now and already stopping. Um, so that's kind of what it is. And of course, a lot of them have been quite discredited already, uh, for example, geoengineering, or they, although they're still continuing. But so land use is now seen as a kind of soft, nice, nice way of um, achieving these negative emissions. So, you know, people think of tree planting and they have all these fluffy pictures of, you know, um, how it, we're going to plant a trillion trees, as the World Economic Forum says, and that sounds much better. You have geoengineering and this is bioengineering. So it's not very different in the logic or in the way that it's being done. It's just simply that it's now using nature rather than um, technology to do this. These soft, nice, nice plans for net zero not only deflect from the real and radical action that is necessary and available if we are to immediately scale back from fossil fuel production, but they essentially posit that giving corporations jurisdiction over even more land is not the problem, but the solution. Estimates suggest that to deploy bioenergy with carbon capture and storage globally, somewhere in the range of 100 to 3,000 million hectares of land will be required. And it's not clear who will claim ownership of these areas of land or where they will come from. But based on the past 500 or so years, it's not hard to guess how this will unfold. When I said in my piece that how land is used and by whom and for what are deeply political issues, I think it's to understand that a lot of the times, um, of course, in the way that uh, corporations, uh, fossil fuel corporations, but also uh, agribusiness and plantations corporations would have you believe that, you know, land is just, land is there and there's nobody on it, or, you know, it's a, it's a mostly academic discussion uh, of how much carbon it can sequester and, you know, who can best use it and things like that. But it's not only them. I mean, I think, of course, um, Western governments do that a lot. Uh, and sometimes, actually, you also see within the climate movement that people who have not worked on land issues don't really understand, you know, how deeply political land, you know, dealing with land and land tenure, access to land, control of land, you know, whose whose choices are made are, are extremely contentious issues. And, you know, it, so they, the discussion comes kind of also quite technical. And um, academic, either in terms of, you know, how much biodiversity is being saved or how much is being conserved or how much now how much carbon is being sequestered. But um, for those of us who have worked on on land issues um, for several years, you know, land is is a political area. So whose land is being offered to multinational companies looking to offset and therefore maintain their current carbon emissions? In Mozambique, the Italian multinational oil and gas company, ENI, which is considered one of the seven super major oil companies in the world, has recently been implicated in kicking 550 families off their land and blocking fisher folk from the sea. At the very same time, ENI is promising to plant 20 million hectares of forest in Africa to achieve net zero by 2030. For the communities living on the land and forest, this is essentially a double land grab. Once for resources required for gas extraction, and another for the land needed to offset it. As Seb Ordonez outlined in episode one of our series, it is easy to see how these so-called green initiatives are simply reproducing colonial patterns of inequality. Without a global Green New Deal that centres social justice at its core, the concept of net zero continues to legitimise companies like ENI, headquartered in the global north, to exploit communities in the global south. Land-based climate policies imposed from above can carry grave threats to the sovereignty of local communities. When trees are carefully selected to promote biodiversity, in light of the particularities of a local ecosystem and under the direction of local community knowledge, then, of course, 
tree planting is by no means a bad thing. Replenishing what has been lost is part of the journey to building a more sustainable relationship with land. But if the driving force is to plant enough trees to offset the vast amounts of carbon emitted by our current system, we are looking at a new wave of land grabs that displace, dispossess and don't work to curb climate breakdown. But it's not just oligarchs and career politicians pushing the politics of carbon offsetting. Hello, my, my name is Alex Widgeratna. I'm a campaign director from Mighty Earth, which is an environmental organisation based in Washington uh, in, in the US. I work on a global rubber campaign uh, trying to ensure human rights and uh, stop deforestation in the global rubber uh, sector, but I also look at wider issues for Mighty Earth as well. So thank you for having me. The enclosure of forests away from local communities so they can be used as carbon sinks is facilitated by the conservation initiatives of NGOs and large multinational institutions. The notion of conservation is deeply rooted in the colonial image of virgin land. Nature is fetishized as pristine and untouched by humans. And this purity is something that needs to be defended by colonial power. Nowhere is there a more beautiful setting than the river valleys and forests. Here, the law of the jungle prevails, the law that is older and better than man-made laws. <laughs> Contemporary conservation projects continue this legacy. Yeah, I mean, basically, Red Plus is a sort of an acronym for a scheme uh, known as reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. So that's where the Red and the, and the Red Plus comes from. It's an initiative that has come out of the climate UN climate discussions, and it was sort of proposed. In, in, uh, under the Bali Action Plan, which is in 2007, um, and at, at the UNFCC, the UN Climate D Discussions. Um, and it's to do with a market-based approach to, uh, to preserving um, and mitigating and offsetting carbon emissions um, and pr protecting forest carbon stocks. So it's it's an initiative that's been supported by very powerful institutions such as the World Bank um, and also other UN bodies such as uh, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN Environment Programme and the UN Development Programme. So, but it's been very driven ideologically by the World Bank, and that 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 gives us some warning signs um, from the beginning that this is a very market-based approach to offsetting emissions in generally in the north uh, and in industrialized countries through payment schemes to forest-dependent communities in largely in well, in the in southern countries um, to mitigate and offset carbon emissions. So I hope that is uh, a simplified version of what Red Plus is. Current issues with so-called nature-based solutions build on long-standing attempts through the United Nations Red Plus scheme to create financial incentives for conserving forest ecosystems in global south countries. In many scenarios, this involves usurping the practices of forest-dependent peoples who have sustainably managed their ecosystem on which they rely for centuries in favour of a centralised governance system. Here, land-based knowledge is displaced in favour of a top-down approach. Instead of returning autonomy to communities who have cultivated the land for years, these programmes reduce their role in decision-making. RED is a scheme that will put a stop to deforestation in tropical forests by assigning a financial value to their carbon store. 
supporting conservation and sustainable forest management so it becomes more attractive than the alternatives. It's essentially a switch of a paradigm that we're talking about. And in order to do that, forest communities need to work with governments as much as governments need to work with forest communities. I think it does come out of this very neoliberal approach and colonial approach to to the perception that forests and natural resources related to forests and, and akin to forests are not owned by local communities, essentially, even though a billion people globally rely on forests worldwide. We know that they are the basis of their, their livelihoods, the basis of their, of their cosmos, the basis of their food security, their, their health and, and everything. And that does also include 60 million indigenous communities who, who have rights to these natural resources, but, but they, are, they are often perceived by governments by corporations as natural resources to be exploited commercially, exploited uh, without value to, to the communities that have habitually worked, lived amongst them. So it, it's very much a, the red plus approach is very much trying to, to reinforce a market-based mechanism of looking at the carbon that's stored within those forests, which obviously is really important globally, um, but it's seeing it from a very much a market-based approach and that there should be incentives placed and imposed on local communities through these projects, these red plus projects that have been piloted over the last 10 to 12 to 15 years, which can run totally in contrast to the way the local indigenous and local forest-dependent communities view their relationship to those forests. In a number of African countries, these financial incentives enable states to grab land from indigenous and forest communities without seeking full, prior and informed consent, despite this being required as part of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. These kinds of market-based solutions further entrench the grip of corporate and state power over how our land is used. They try to integrate so-called natural capital into the financial evaluations of banks, investment funds and insurance companies. These surface attempts to green land use without interrogating the politics of land ownership simply compound the path to climate breakdown. Here, land is not liberated from the clutches of financial markets, but further integrated into them. So what do I mean by green colonialism specifically? For me, it is the extension of the colonial relations of plunder and dispossession, as well as the dehumanization of the other through the externalization and displacement of social environmental costs to the green era to the renewables period. Basically, it's we have the same system, but with a different source of energy. So from fossil fuels, we go to renewables, while all the political and economic and social structures that generate inequality, impoverishment, and dispossession remain untouched. As, as for green grabbing, it is a concept coined to refer to some of the dynamics of land grabs that take place within a supposedly green agenda. In other words, uh, we see the appropriation of land and the resources for supposedly environmental ends. If you watched David Attenborough's beautifully made Netflix documentary, A Life on Our Planet, you may have come away with the idea that desert renewable technology can save us. Yet, as we've seen, techno-fixes don't get to the heart of climate justice. The world is embroiled in an energy contradiction. Hundreds of millions of people across the globe are unable to access energy to carry out basic functions, heating their homes, powering cooking appliances. 
multinational corporations at the same time are ramping up land grabs in the name of energy provision for a tiny minority in the global north. In this context, where the energy security of the north trumps the human rights and sovereignty of people in the south, where priorities are dictated by the richest and most powerful states and multinationals, it is of paramount importance to scrutinize the political economy of energy transitions. So my name is Hamza Hamushan, um, an Algerian uh, researcher and activist based in London. Currently, I work for the Transnational Institute. And the title of in my chapter in, uh, in the collection was the Green Energy Grabs. Hamza's piece focused on two case study examples he's been researching that show how energy colonialism is being reproduced by large-scale renewable energy projects in North Africa. Here at the edge of Morocco's Sahara Desert, life is tough, opportunities are few, but there's one resource that's available in abundance, sunshine. In Morocco, the Wazazet solar plan was launched in 2016 just before the 22nd Global Climate Summit, COP22. It was praised as the largest solar plant in the world, and the Moroccan monarchy was declared a champion of renewable energies. I I came across that project um, when I was doing my fieldwork in Morocco back in 2016, early 2016. And at the time, Morocco has been championed as one of the world leaders of renewables. Uh, And during the climate talks, the COP22 at that time, in in November 2016, the Warzazet solar plan has been launched and it was described as the largest or the biggest solar plant in the world back then. So, but when then you start to dig under the surface, you realize that this project failed to bring any semblance of justice to the Amazigh or the Berber agro-pastoralist communities whose land were used without their consent to install the 3,000 hectare facility. Um, The project has been funded through debts, $9 billion that come from the World Bank, from the European Investment Bank and others And these debts are backed by Moroccan government guarantees, which means potentially more public debts if the project fails at some point for a country already overburdened with debts. And then the other element about this project is that it is using a technology called concentrated thermal power, the CSP. And that technology necessitates extensive use of water in order to cool down and clean the panels. So in a semi-arid region like Warzazet, Warzazet, which is in the southeast of Morocco, diverting water use from drinking to uh, an agriculture to the solar plant is just outrageous. Hamza told us about how this logic continues to underpin Morocco's strategy for green energy transition. And this is just one example amongst many in Morocco, actually. Um, There is another example uh, project that is being currently built called the Noor Middelt project, which which constitutes phase two of Morocco's solar power plan and aims to provide more energy capacity than the Warzazet plan. Uh, It will be launched, I think, in 2022. And it will be one of the world's biggest solar projects to combine the CSP technology and the photovoltaic as well. Um, The the people uh, or the companies participating in this project, again, foreign companies, you have the French EDF Renewables, you have the Emirati Masdar, and you have another conglomerate, Moroccan conglomerate, working with the Moroccan Agency for Solar Energy. The project, again, contracted uh, $2 billion in in, in debts from the World Bank, from the African Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, as well as other private private banks. And again, it is also built on thousands of hectares of communal land that have been confiscated again 
from agro-pastoralist Amazil communities. And some of those pastoralist communities is the tribe of Sidi Ayyad, who has been using that land to graze its animals for centuries, and they have been protesting against that project, which they called um, explicitly an occupation. And just to, to, to finish on an important point when we talk about Morocco, is Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara. So while some of the projects in Morocco, like the Warzazet and Middle Solar Plant, um, there are other similar renewable projects, solar and wind, that are taking place in the occupied territories of Western Sahara. And these can be labeled green colonialism as they are carried out in spite of the Saharawis and on their occupied land. And these projects, of course, are being used to entrench the occupation by deepening Morocco's tie to the occupied territories with the obvious complicity of foreign capital and companies. In these examples, a familiar colonial pattern is being rolled out in front of our eyes. The unrestricted flow of cheap natural resources, including solar energy, from the global south to the rich north. Meanwhile, Fortress Europe builds walls and fences to keep out people who are often displaced, either directly or indirectly, by these very practices of land grabs and commodification. Land grabs have historically been the bread and butter of the fossil fuel industry. However, As the climate crisis creates pressure to transition to a post-carbon world, green does not always equal good when it comes to community-driven land sovereignty. Across Latin America, Southeast Asia and Africa, efforts to attain energy efficiency and develop large-scale biofuel development have led to land grabbing by both local and multinational elites. Proposals to cover Western Sahara in solar panels assume empty, open space available for exploitation by European and US companies. Rather than providing renewable energy security for all, these companies will use the land according to whatever generates the most profitable returns. Similarly, Israel's reputation as a hub for solar energy is built on commercial solar fields in the occupied. West Bank, while Palestinians remain unable to access consistent energy supplies. So when it comes to the use of land for green projects, we cannot lose sight of these intense power dynamics. We must always ask, who owns what? Who gets what? And is the land being used to equitably fulfil people's needs or to continue profit and growth at all costs? So, how can we reimagine our relationship to nature and place to move beyond this extractivist logic and toward a post-carbon, post-capitalist future? What does land on planet B look like? Here, some of the most inspirational examples come from indigenous communities and forest-dwelling peoples across the globe. Incredibly, 80% of Earth's biodiversity remains in tribal territories. And, as has been obvious time and time again, when indigenous peoples have secure rights over their land, they can serve their environment far better and at a fraction of the cost of conventional conservation programs. But as we've seen, in Africa and Asia, Governments and NGOs are systematically incentivized to steal vast areas of land from tribal people and local communities under the greenwashing claims of conservation. The grabbed land is called a protected area or a national park, and the original inhabitants are dispossessed, often by the use of violence. In February 2020, Survival International Research implicated the World Wildlife Foundation in funding so-called eco-guards who have been accused of torturing the forest communities that have long relied on and protected the Mesokja area of the Republic of Congo. Similar stories of forest peoples being displaced and then tortured for entering their previous territories 
have been seen in Nepal. Indigenous peoples of the world have been persecuted by European colonialists for centuries as capital expanded its spatial borders to feed the machine of insatiable growth. Perhaps the most well-known example glorified in mainstream Western pop culture is the decimation of the indigenous peoples of the Americas by European settler colonialists from the early 17th century onwards. Awesome. Yeah, my name is Julian Brave Noisecat. I am a journalist, a writer, a policy advocate and analyst. I'm currently the vice president of policy and strategy for Data for Progress, which is a think tank. And I am also working on a book uh, about indigenous peoples in the United States and Canada. So I am a citizen of the Canham Lake Band Eskin, which is a First Nation from what is now British Columbia, Canada. Uh, I grew up in the United States, but my indigenous roots are from the, the Canadian side of the border. And my people are survivors of this very cataclysmic series of events that dispossessed us of our lands and... Um, ended up killing many of our of our people and then abducted our children into a set of assimilationist uh, schools that are called residential schools in Canada. In, in the United States, we call them Native American boarding schools, but they were the same thing. And my life and my family's contemporary circumstances uh, and my people's um, social position remains deeply shaped uh, fundamentally shaped. And uh, for many, many years, um, probably my whole conscious life, uh, and certainly my intellectual and political life, uh, I've been trying to understand what this experience is, this experience that I'm that I'm part of, and that I've, I've inherited. And um, over the last number of years, I've also been thinking a lot about climate change and the climate crisis. And my position amidst that as an indigenous person, but also as, you know, a, a member of a generation of people who are inheriting a, a very broken um, earth and a, a, a climate that is rapidly um, devolving into something that is much different uh, from the atmosphere that supported all prior civilization. And the way that I've I've sort of started to think about and articulate this is as a apocalyptic experience and, and as an indigenous person being a post-apocalyptic person. Julian has been deeply involved in US public policy debates over climate breakdown in recent years and has written extensively on how the experience of being an indigenous post-apocalyptic person informs his perspective of our contemporary moment of climate collapse. As an Indian, you know you are born into a society that says that what Indians do is is die and and you know play this role of being you know a former sort of enemy and trope that was conquer conquered by um, the settler societies that took our land and and you know now form the United States and Canada and and the bulk of the countries in in North and South America today and to inhabit that that racial position is to feel as though um, you have, you and your people have very little to offer to um, broader society and humanity uh, that, you know, all you can really do is, is, is play this, this role that existed in the past. And, you know, there is nothing uh, that your people or you have to contribute to, uh, broader progress and and justice and things that you know we're supposed to care about as um, you know modern human beings and you know I I struggled a lot with that when I was a, a young person I remember uh, reading about you know civilization quote unquote uh, when I was in sixth grade I think in 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 middle school and about, you know, how agriculture and all these things were sort of the building blocks of civilization. And, you know, I had this whole bizarre set of, um, 
inferiority complexes built around the fact that my people were not uh, agriculturalists. We we built our society around the harvest of salmon from our rivers and and things of that nature. And you know, into my sort of young adulthood, and then and, you know, as I went off to school and got very interested in these sorts of subjects, progress, justice, and indigenous people's space and role in that. Um, I started thinking about, you know, uh, especially amidst the climate crisis, a circumstance where um, much of humanity is facing now earth-shattering consequences. What what are the things that a people who have experienced earth-shattering um, uh, social realities, uh, you know, might and environmental realities as well, actually, uh, might lend to a broader humanity, and and I think one of them is is um, you know what it means to survive, what it means to um, persist, to honor what came before, to mourn what was lost, um, and then also to you know insist that the things that came before, even if they were devalued, uh, you know, in sort of racial sort of hierarchies of you know what kind of knowledge matters and does not. Uh, to insist that, you know, some of our forms of traditional knowledge, but also sort of, you know, that resilience and that ability to create beauty in the wake of genocide and apocalypse, you know, is something that that is really going to be important and valuable to humans who are now facing that kind of, uh, not the same, but, a, you know, a, a set of earth shattering circumstances that are currently unfolding. It is important to look at and learn from the relationships that Indigenous people have with the land around them. That's not to homogenize or romanticize a projected ideal of certain modes of being, but among other things, Indigenous relationships can hold a mirror up to our own modern capitalist society. To demystify the belief that extraction and domination is the innate order of humanity and nature, and to show that alternate value systems are indeed possible. As well as expanding our philosophies of land, there is much to be learnt from the historical and contemporary experiences of Indigenous people who have lived through colonialism about the tactics of resistance, particularly when it comes to the occupation of land. One of the most common forms of resistance that comes out of Indigenous uh, social and political movements is sometimes referred to as um, occupation, but I think more accurately would be characterized as reoccupation, essentially the assertion through uh, the presence of people of, you know, a claim to land and place. And uh, usually that's sort of a claim via treaty rights and agreements that have been broken and or through a prior form of governance that uh, was never extinguished and persists amidst colonial circumstances. So where I grew up in in the Bay Area, um, in Oakland, California, one of the most significant and sort of um, was often acknowledged as sort of a starting point for the contemporary indigenous uh, rights movement was the occupation of, of Alcatraz, the former federal prison in the middle of San Francisco Bay, where in 1969, a group of Native students and urbanites uh, reclaimed the the island of Alcatraz under provisions of the Fort Laramie Treaty that basically said that federal land that was not being used by the federal government, uh, you know, which was the case for the the Alcatraz federal prison uh, after it was closed, could be reclaimed uh, by by Native peoples, and sort of throughout Indigenous history. Um, that kind of an act of um, reclaiming and reasserting uh, presence, in particular on land, has been a, a very common form of, of protest and one that has also been seen in uh, non-Indigenous movements. You know, of course, there was the Occupy movement and in at Occupy Wall Street, where in another way, you know, the ninety-nine percent or you know people who were uh, not the very small number of winners in our very unequal capitalist society, you know, uh, asserted their small d democratic right to, um, you know, place amidst, uh, you know, the sort of quintessential and, and central 
place of, of like sort of the capitalist breadwinners, which is of course Wall Street. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of, uh, of, a, of a tactic in a very basic sense of, you know, asserting uh, your place and your right to ground either, you know, literal territory or ground in, um, you know, sort of the, the, the political economy ground and, and right to uh, place in our economy and our, in our capitalist society uh, is a very sort of strong way to um, signal that, you know, the existing power structure, the, the sovereign entities that be are, are being challenged uh, on their right to um, govern or control a resource in the way that they are currently governing and controlling it. And, you know, I think the fact that that kind of a protest tactic has, um, and, and sort of political strategy has emerged in multiple contexts and been employed by many indigenous peoples as well as non-indigenous peoples sort of attest to the fact that it's, uh, it's a pretty effective way to, to challenge power. The most famous examples of indigenous reoccupation in recent years have been against major oil pipelines in the United States. You might have heard of the successful protests against the building of the Keystone XL pipeline, which was recently scrapped by President Biden after over a decade of indigenous resistance. Or the protests at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline, which made global news during the presidential election in 2016. These instructive accounts of Indigenous resistance against the infrastructures of climate breakdown have helped shift the dial when it comes to the conversations around climate justice, particularly in the United States. They have forefronted questions of sovereignty, questions like who has been given the right to pollute and build and why? In the age of renewable energy infrastructures, where do our resources come from? And how do we centre the voices of affected communities? It is no coincidence that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the figurehead of the movement for a Green New Deal in the United States, was one of the thousands that joined the Indigenous Sioux Tribe protests at Standing Rock. Beyond solidarity, there's knowledge to be learned from. From the Indigenous communities that have protected biodiversity from the smallholder farmers that have engaged in non-toxic, regenerative, agroecological food-growing models, which, if universalized, would not only cool the planet, but feed the world at least three times over. From the communities advocating decentralized, renewable and democratic energy for all. Only when we have broken out of a model that privileges the enrichment of oligarchal energy companies above all else can we create the space to develop a system that sustainably fulfills our needs. This is not only compatible with the principles of land sovereignty, it is absolutely reliant on it. Thank you for listening to Planet B, Everything Must Change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Shifton. This episode was written by Dahlia Gabriel and Freddie Stewart. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann. And the podcast art was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garone. Just one final reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal the illustrated book on which this series is based at www.global-gnd.com. You'll find the next documentary episode of Planet B right here on Navarra Media at the same time, in the same place, next week. And stay tuned for extended editions of our guest interviews, which we'll be publishing as bonus content. I've been your host, Harpreet Kaur Paul. Thanks for listening.